This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Cursed Hollywood, where I tell you stories of Hollywood productions that seemingly are cursed with bad luck for their creators and stars. On the first episode of this series... I told you the stories of a trio of actors who experienced troubled lives after becoming child stars. But in this week's episode, a number of even younger child stars would seemingly fall under a collective curse. These children were so young, some became stars when they were still mere toddlers. When they were first introduced to a Hollywood set, the restrictions on age and number of hours a child could be asked to work were not yet in place. This was in the earliest days of Hollywood, even before talking pictures. From 1922 to the 1940s, over 40 child actors would be cast in a popular series of short films, and many of them would later fall victim to strange accidents, illnesses, drug addiction, financial hardship, murder, and suicide. This is the curse of the Little Rascals. In 1934, Gladys and George Switzer traveled from their home in Paris, Illinois, to visit relatives in sunny California. They brought along on the trip their three children, Janice, age 11, Harold, age 8, and Carl Dean, age 6. The brothers, Harold and Carl Dean, were known in their hometown as talented entertainers. They enjoyed performing for family and friends. Both could sing and played several instruments. While in California, Gladys Witzer heard that Hal Roach Studios was holding an open audition at the Argang Cafe, located outside of the studio proper. Mrs. Switzer would become one of those cliched stage mothers everyone talks about. She believed her children to be extraordinarily talented and just knew if Mr. Roach saw them perform, he would snatch them up for his films. But this time, this stage mother would be right. Hal Roach did like what he saw in young Harold and Carl Switzer and cast them in his next film short called Beginner's Luck, which was a most appropriate title considering the circumstances. Hal Roach, a comedy producer, started a film studio in 1914. Unable to expand in Los Angeles, he moved his studio, Hal Roach Studios, to Culver City, California in 1920. Hal Roach Studios became most famous for producing the Laurel and Hardy films and the R-Gang short reels, which would later be known under the name The Little Rascals. As a busy and stressed studio executive, Hal Roach took a break from meetings one day and watched some children playing together outside. As he watched them, he found himself smiling and then chuckling at the games they made up to play with one another, inventing roles for themselves, making up rules, and just using their imaginations at will. He realized while observing the children that not only were they entertaining, but they gave him the feeling of just pure joy simply watching them be children. Shirley Temple had begun performing in short films and features in 1932 when she was just three years old. In the first of these short films, called Baby Burlesques, toddlers played grown-ups who wore adult clothing with diapers on their bottoms fashioned with oversized diaper pins. It was very cute, but Hal Roach thought they were missing the point of what really made children fun and entertaining, seeing them interact as they would naturally. He decided to make films that allowed children to act and play like children, these would become the Our Gang films. Because many of the children were too young to read, most never saw a script. 
Instead, the scenes they were acting in would be explained to them, and then improvisation was encouraged. When sound was introduced into films in the 1930s, simple lines would be fed to the younger children through megaphones by the director. Because within a few years the children would age out of these productions or become too old for the R-Gang group, they would have to be replaced with younger children. Since many children were needed over the years, casting calls and open auditions happened frequently. Most of the children came from the local Los Angeles area. As the R-Gang series gained in popularity, hordes of parents brought their children to Roach Studios, hoping their child would be cast as the next member of the Our Gang. When six-year-old Carl and eight-year-old Harold joined the cast, they, like most of the other children, were quickly given nicknames. Harold, who would only play in a few films and mostly in the background, was called both Slim and Deadpan. Carl was given the name Alfalfa because of his cowlick, a portion of his hair that tended to stick up on the top. Later, this would become Alfalfa's trademark when he was exaggerated as part of his costume and slicked up into a point. His natural freckles were also exaggerated with makeup. Carl Switzer would play Alfalfa from 1935 to 1940. He was cast as a sidekick for Spanky, played by George McFarland. McFarland had already been acting in Our Gang films for three years, since he was barely out of diapers. The other major players in the group were Darla Hood, who played Darla, one of the few females in the cast, and the only female major character, Matthew Beard, who played Stymie, Tommy Bond, who played Butch, and Billy Thomas, who played Buckwheat. Hal Roach's Our Gang series was groundbreaking in that it portrayed black and white children interacting together as equals. Stymie and Buckwheat were two of the black children on the cast. Buckwheat and Porky were best friends in the series. Porky was played by a white child actor, Eugene Gordon Lee. The series was set around this group of children and their shared dog, a pit bull mix named Petey. They went on adventures together and got into any number of scrapes. Spanky was the de facto leader of the group and usually the most serious. He was the one who tended to come up with the plans for the group. Alfalfa was the comic relief. The skinny freckled boy with the big pointy cow lick considered himself a ladies' man as well as a crooner. The running joke was that Alfalfa thought he was a wonderful singer, but sang extremely off-key. He was in love with Darla, who sometimes reciprocated his affections and sometimes did not. Either way, he was ridiculed to no end by the rest of the gang, especially Spanky, who began a boys-only club that he called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. By most accounts, the children enjoyed their time on the set, and most got along well. The hours could sometimes be long, and the work demanding, but Hal Roach allowed the children to be children for the most part and wanted them to look like they were enjoying themselves. However, tensions began to arise on the set after Carl Alfalfa Switzer arrived. Most who worked with the boy actor would later say that Switzer was a problem child. We'll start off with his story and how the little rascal's curse affected him. Carl Dean Switzer won the role as the best friend of Spanky on the R-Gang films. The series was repackaged under the name The Little Rascals in 1949. In 1938, Hal Roach could no longer afford to produce the R-Gang series and sold it to MGM. In 1949, he sold the back catalog of the series but kept the rights to the original name. It was at this time that MGM began using the new name. In 1955, MGM syndicated the Little Rascals series to television, 
So that's the name that most kids who grew up in the 1950s and beyond know it as. While George McFarlane as Spanky and Switzer got along fine on the set, their parents did not. Switzer's mother was said to be a stereotypical stage mom who was always there to make sure her son was featured prominently and got star treatment and also fought for him to get top billing. Switzer's father famously fought with McFarlane's dad as well. Spanky was the star of the show and had been the lead character for a couple of years before Switzer arrived. But that didn't seem to matter to Gladys Switzer, who believed her actor and singer son was the real talent in the cast. As his character Alfalfa, Switzer would always sing off key for laughs, but was actually a very accomplished singer. Perhaps because of the special status conveyed on young Carl Dean Switzer by his parents, the boy quickly became a problem child and a hellraiser on the set. There were many reports of Switzer pulling pranks on the crew and cast alike, many of them mean-spirited and as a means of revenge. He was characterized as difficult by the crew and as a bully by some of the other child stars. For fun, he'd step on the other children's feet, punch at them, and even poke them with nails. Darla Hood, who played Alfalfa's love interest, would later say that she was, quote, terrified of Alfalfa, unquote. Another child actor in the series, Jerry Tucker, said that everyone used to bend over backwards for Switzer on the set and that he was unliked by most of the other kids. His buddy on the set was Tommy Bond, who ironically played Alfalfa's bully, Butch. But it wasn't all mean-spirited jokes. Switzer also had a temper when he didn't get his way. Sometimes he'd start fistfights with the other kids. Of course, he always had his parents close by to defend any of his bad behavior as a response to not being given star treatment. Kenneth Smith, who played Waldo, told the producers of E! True Hollywood Story that Switzer threw a firecracker at Smith's dad for no reason and used mean pranks to get even with others. One day during filming, Switzer was dawdling on set and taking his time, and a camera operator complained that the prolonged filming was encroaching on everyone's lunch break. He told the eight-year-old boy to hurry it up already and say his lines. Well, Switzer didn't like his attitude, so at the break, he decided to get even with him and asked all the kids to chew up wads of bubble gum to give to him. When he had a large ball of sticky gum, he snuck onto the set and jammed it inside the camera. Filming had to be halted for the rest of the afternoon, while the camera was taken apart to remove the gum and clean all the gears. But probably the most famous incident of Switzer's bad behavior on set was when he got angry with the director one day and once again snuck on the set during a break, but this time he urinated on the set lights. When the cast and crew returned and switched on the hot lights, the stench drove everyone off the set. Switzer did have his time as a star and even reportedly upstaged Clark Gable one day when they were both exiting the studio at the same time. He proved to be the more popular with the crowd that had gathered outside. But he should have known that his appeal would only last as long as he remained a cute, freckled-faced kid. In 1938, one of the main R-gang kids, Porky, was let go when he matured too quickly. He was replaced with the character Mickey, played by Robert Blake. But more on Blake later. The series also began to wane in popularity after it was sold to MGM in 1938. The new studio made the series a slicker production and required the kids to be more polished and play the characters in a new, mature way, emulating little adults. The series lost its initial appeal of the freedom of childhood, as well as the slapstick comedy that most appealed to its audience. So in 1940, when he was 12 years old, Switzer's time as a member of our gang was over. 
Tommy Bond also left the series at that time. The following year, Darla Hood would also be written out, and a year after that, George Spanky McFarlane would leave as well. One of the criticisms of the MGM days was that the studio kept the kids even into their preteens, which didn't fit the show well. McFarlane played Spanky until he was 14. The last cast member to be replaced was William Thomas, who played Buckwheat. Switzer was sure that he would move into other roles and act as a leading man in films. But this was not to be. He did receive a few roles soon after leaving the series, but by 1933, he was forced to take small uncredited roles, cast as Boy in Street, Elevator Boy, and Messenger Boy in various films. In 1946, he had a pretty cool small role in It's a Wonderful Life. He plays the guy that's dancing with Mary when George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, cuts in at the school dance. His character even has a name, Freddie Othello. Unfortunately, even this role went uncredited. One of his last roles in 1956 was playing one of Pharaoh's slaves in the big-budget film The Ten Commandments. Switzer met Diane Collingwood on a blind date in 1954. They married three months later and had one son. By 1956, Switzer was nearly broke and had a family to support. His wife's parents offered them a farm in Kansas. They moved there in 1957. But by the year's end, the couple had divorced. While he continued to try and earn acting roles, Switzer supplemented his income by bartending and as a fishing and hunting guide in Northern California. He became well-known as an expert in these pursuits, and even had some famous clients like Jimmy Stewart and Roy Rogers, who was his son's godfather. Switzer also made money by training hunting dogs for some of his clients. In 1959, Switzer was training a hunting dog for a man named Moses Samuel Stilts when the dog ran off after a bear and couldn't be found. Switzer offered a $35 reward for the return of the dog. A few days later, a man found the dog and brought him to the bar in Studio City where Switzer was bartending. He paid the man the $35 reward and also paid his $15 bar tab, which is quite a lot of booze. $15 in 1959 equals over 100 bucks in today's dollars. Either those were some fancy drinks or he had a group of people with him. A few days later, Switzer was hanging out with a friend and they got to talking about the lost dog and the reward he'd paid to have him returned. Switzer decided that the client, Stilts, owed him the 50 bucks he'd spent to get the dog back. Uh, the dog was lost on his watch, and I'm sure the dog was a purebred something or other that cost some money to own in the first place. I don't know from hunting dogs. All my dogs are just lazy house pets. But even so, Switzer became angry and decided to demand payment from Stilts. Now Switzer's personality as a hothead and a bully probably play into his actions that day, but I also wonder if there wasn't some booze involved. He seems pretty reckless as these events unfold, but that's just my speculation. You can decide. Switzer showed up at Stiltz's residence in Mission Hills on January 21, 1959, and started banging on the door, according to Stiltz's later statement to police. Switzer demanded he open the door, or he said he would kick it in. Once inside, he demanded to be reimbursed the 50 bucks. Stiltz didn't believe he owed him any money, and an argument ensued. More words were exchanged, and Switzer attacked the other man, hitting him over the head with a glass clock. Now bleeding, Stilts retrieved a gun. It appears that he may have just wanted to threaten Switzer and make him leave, because Switzer was able to grab the gun, causing it to go off. A bullet was shot into the ceiling. Stilts then got control of the gun, and Switzer pulled out a knife, 
threatened to kill him and lunged at him with the weapon. Stilts fired the weapon, and Switzer was shot in the groin. He was rushed to a hospital, but was announced dead on arrival from massive internal bleeding. He was 31 years old. The death of Carl Dean Switzer was investigated and was determined to be a case of self-defense, and Stilts was not charged. Over 40 years later, Stilts' stepson would dispute the original account of the shooting and would place the blame on his stepfather. Tom Corrigan said that while Switzer had come to the house drunk, see, I was right, and demanded payment, Stilts had pulled out a gun before the fight began. Stilts had been hit over the head by Switzer's friend, Jack Piott, as the two struggled over the gun. The shot fired into the ceiling, which resulted in the boy being grazed in the leg by a bullet fragment. He and his sisters then ran out of the house to call for help. At that point, Corrigan says, he heard Switzer exclaim, Well, we shot Tommy. Enough of this. He and Piot started for the front door. From outside, Corrigan said he heard the second shot and saw Switzer fall. He didn't have to kill him, Tom Corrigan told the press in 2000. Corrigan also said he saw a closed penknife fall from either Switzer's hand or pocket. A penknife was found under Switzer's body. It was not a hunting knife, as some papers had initially reported. Corrigan would later say that he hadn't spoken up at the time because his stepfather was abusive and he was afraid. So, which is the real version? We may never know. As far as I can tell, no one else came forward to corroborate Corrigan's version of the story, and Stiltz's version is still the only one on record. He died in 1983. One last detail to Carl Dean Alfalfa Switzer's sad and tragic life. He happened to die the same day as Cecil B. DeMille, the acclaimed filmmaker famous for movies including Cleopatra and The Ten Commandments. Because of this, he was completely upstaged in the press by the bigger story, and the story of his untimely death barely made it into the papers. On his headstone, a figure of a dog is carved. Many people believe this is in honor of Petey from the Little Rascal series, but it is not. It is to honor his work training hunting dogs and his love of the sport. There were a series of tragic accidents and illnesses that befell other cast members over the years, which, after the tragic death of Carl Switzer, started rumors of a curse. Norman Cheney played Chubby from 1929 to 1931. Cheney was said to be a really nice boy with impeccable comic timing. Cheney was already 14 when he joined the cast, but was only 3 foot 11 inches tall. He was overweight, which gave him his nickname, and this also made him appear younger. Some of his most memorable scenes was getting in the ring to fight a kid-produced boxing match to raise money in an episode titled Boxing Gloves and Love Business, where he crushes on his teacher, Mrs. Crabtree. She calls him Norman, but he tells her, Aw, don't call me Norman. Call me Chubsy-Ubsy. It's really cute. He didn't continue acting after his role ended in 1931, but returned to his native Maryland. He suffered from a glandular condition, which caused him to continue gaining weight. By 1935, he weighed over 300 pounds. He underwent a risky surgery that year to help relieve his condition. Afterwards, he began losing weight rapidly, weighing in at only 136 pounds soon afterwards. He became seriously ill, and in 1936, he died from myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle. At the time of his death, 
He weighed only 110 pounds. He was just 21 years old. Norman Cheney's grave went unmarked for over 75 years. His mother couldn't afford a headstone. The cast members of the R Gang films had been paid a weekly salary, reportedly between $40 and $200, but they never received any residuals for the television series or the decades of reruns of The Little Rascals. In 2012, a fundraiser was held by a Detroit musician named Mikkel. Mikkel or Michael? M-I-K-A-L, you guys tell me. $4,500 was raised, and markers were finally placed over the graves of both Cheney and his mother. Darla Hood began playing Darla in the R Gang films at the age of four. She was also cast in a Laurel and Hardy film. After leaving the series in 1941 at the age of 11, Darla acted in a few television roles, but now focused on her singing. She began singing with a group of classmates from Fairfax High School. She and the four boys named the group Darla and the Enchanters. After high school, they were booked to perform on Ken Murray's stage variety show. She then began a solo singing career, performing in nightclubs and on television variety shows like The Merv Griffin Show and The Jack Benny Show. She recorded several singles and an album. She later had her own nightclub act that ran at venues in New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. She was involved in producing a Little Rascals reunion event that was to take place in 1980 when she had an attack of appendicitis and went into surgery. She unexpectedly died on the operating table of heart failure on June 13, 1979. She was 47 years old. An autopsy would reveal that she had contracted a case of acute hepatitis from a blood transfusion she'd received during the operation. She would leave behind five children, two from her first marriage to Robert Decker and three with her husband, Jose Granson, who she was married to at the time of her death. She is buried at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. As well as illnesses, other tragedies were experienced by a disproportionate number of the Little Rascals. Bobby Hutchins played Weezer from 1927 to 1933. He was given his nickname after growing winded due to running around the studio so much on his first day that he began to wheeze. After his role ended, his family left Hollywood and moved to Tacoma, Washington, where he attended high school. After graduating, he worked as an attendant at a gas station before joining the U.S. Army Air Forces in 1943 with the goal of becoming a pilot. On May 17, 1945, he was killed in a mid-air collision during a training exercise while trying to land at Merced Army Airfield in Merced, California. The other pilot in the aircraft survived. Hutchins had been scheduled to graduate from the flight academy the next week. William Billy Laughlin played the gravelly-voiced character Froggy from 1940 to 1944. He was added to the cast the year Carl Switzer and Tommy Bond ended their roles as Alfalfa and Butch. He came from a loving and traditional family, and after his role ended when he was 12, the family resumed their normal suburban life. Billy was delivering newspapers on his motorized scooter on August 31, 1948, when the scooter was hit by a truck and he was killed. Like Bobby Hutchins, the other person involved survived. His friend was driving the scooter and had just made a U-turn when the speeding truck hit the back of the bike, killing Billy. 
his friends suffered only minor injuries. At 16 years old, Billy Laughlin was the youngest of the cast members to fall prey to the little rascal's curse. Darwood Kay played Waldo from 1937 to 1940. After his role ended, he appeared in a couple of films, including Best Foot Forward with Lucille Ball. He joined the Army and then attended college where he met and married Jean Venden, and they had four sons. He became a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and ministered at churches in San Diego, Escondido, Santa Maria, and Oceanside before moving with his family to Thailand in 1957 where he did missionary work. Now known as Pastor Ken Smith, he remained there for 14 years. The family returned to California, where he continued ministering in Southern California churches. On May 15, 2002, Pastor Smith was struck by a hit-and-run driver in Riverside, California, and died later that night. The driver was never identified. His son David would write a book about his father's life titled Finding Waldo, which was published in 2009. Then there are those cast members who suffered from various other hardships, drugs, alcohol, incarceration, and poverty. Scotty Beckett was the original sidekick for Spanky. He played Scotty from 1934 to 1935, when Carl Switzer was cast as Alfalfa, Spanky's new best friend. However, this may have been a lucky break, because Beckett went on to have a successful acting career, acting along such Hollywood royalty as Spencer Tracy, Errol Flynn, Greta Garbo, and Cary Grant. He signed with MGM in 1947 and co-starred in several more films through the 1950s. But his career began to derail after several incidents involving drugs and alcohol. He was first arrested for drunk driving in 1948. In 1957, he was arrested for trying to transport illegal prescription pills across the Mexican border. In 1959, he was arrested twice more, once for drunk driving and another for the possession of benzodrine pills. Just days after the drug arrest, he got into a solo car accident, crashing his car into a tree in West Los Angeles, breaking a hip and fracturing his skull. He was confined to a wheelchair afterwards. In 1962, he attempted to kill himself during an alcohol binge. In 1968, at the age of 38, he checked into a nursing home in L.A. in bad shape, after being beaten up. The story about who beat him up or why has never been answered. Two days later, he was found dead in his room. Allegedly, a note and pills were left behind, but the contents of the note were never revealed. An autopsy was performed, but strangely, the coroner said that his cause of death was undetermined. However, it's long been suspected that he died as a result of a suicide by overdose of drugs and alcohol. One of my favorite Little Rascals characters was Stymie, played by Matthew Beard. The adorable, bald-headed boy was cast in films when he was still a baby. He began in the R-Gang films in 1930 and was signed to a five-year contract. Stymie's trademark was his oversized derby hat, given to him by none other than comedy and film legend Stan Laurel. Like the rest of the cast, Beard was paid a weekly salary for his acting work. He brought home his paycheck to help support his family, which included 13 brothers and sisters. 
three of his siblings and his mother would also occasionally play parts in the R Gang films. But as the oldest child, Beard felt responsible for his family, and he grew up very fast, saddled with the stress of being the major breadwinner. After he left the series at the age of 10, he continued to act and was cast in some important films. He won roles in Jezebel with Betty Davis and Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. When he returned to civilian life and began attending high school, he had a hard time transitioning. After a whole life in front of the cameras and basically living like a miniature adult, he couldn't relate to his classmates. He ended up dropping out of school at the age of 16. As he aged, acting jobs came fewer and farther between. As a dropout and out-of-work actor, Beard began hanging out in the streets and started doing drugs. At the beginning, he was only indulging in marijuana, but it was at a time in history where marijuana was considered a very dangerous drug. He was arrested for marijuana possession and spent time in jail. While incarcerated, he was introduced to heroin. By the time he was released from jail, he was addicted and now resorted to petty crimes to support his drug habit. Now his life became a revolving door of drug use, petty theft, and stints in jail. In 1950, he was charged with the possession and sale of heroin. Sentenced to 20 years, he only served six before he was released. Afterwards, he continued this lifestyle until he became seriously ill more than once from the drugs and fast living. Finally, fearing for his life if he continued living this way, he checked into the drug rehab facility Sinanon. He would remain with the program for seven years, during which time he completely kicked his heroin habit. After he became healthy, he made an acting comeback and was cast in small roles in Sanford and Son, The Jeffersons, and Starsky and Hutch. He played a recurring character in the series Good Times and also won a role in the film The Buddy Holly Story in 1978. He began making appearances to speak about drug abuse awareness. Two days after he turned 56, he was found by his brother Rene in his home after falling down the stairs after a stroke. He fell into a coma and died as a result of pneumonia on January 8, 1981. He was buried wearing his trademark derby hat. I'm sure you're probably wondering what happened to Spanky. Well, here's George McFarlane's story. George McFarlane was a native of Texas. He modeled children's clothing in Dallas department stores and was featured on billboards for Wonder Bread. He was barely out of diapers when his mother sent his picture to Hal Roach Studios and he was called in for a screen test. He was quickly cast in the R-Gang films. The nickname Spanky came from a term that has since fallen out of fashion. A Spanky child was slang at that time used to describe a child who was intelligent or gifted. A reporter described McFarlane this way and the name stuck. He began playing the role of Spanky in the R-Gang films at the age of three. First cast as the younger brother of Scotty, his talent was soon apparent and he eventually was given the role as the main character and the leader of the group. But after his time as Spanky ended in 1942, he was not offered any other acting roles. As McFarlane said, Hollywood's not buying what Spanky has to sell. He returned to Texas and joined the Air Force, but was discharged due to financial hardship. He took a series of jobs working at a popsicle factory and at a hamburger stand to make ends meet. There was a resurgence of interest in the R-Gang kids when the Little Rascals series debuted on television. George McFarlane was offered a job as the host of a children's local television show in Tulsa, Oklahoma. After a few years, he grew tired of the limitations of the show and quit in 1960. 
He went into sales and became a national sales training director for Philco Ford Corporation. He married his wife Doris in 1967. He was asked to make guest appearances on television talk shows, sometimes reuniting with some of his cast members. He appeared on The Mike Douglas Show with Darla Hood and William Buckwheat Thomas in 1973. He was also a presenter at the 56th Annual Academy Awards in 1984. His last acting role was playing the grown-up Spanky McFarland in an episode of Cheers in 1993. That same year, he was living in Keller, Texas, when he collapsed at his home. He was rushed to Baylor University Medical Center, but died from a heart aneurysm soon after. In 1994, he posthumously received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Carl Switzer's death was classified as a homicide, but not a murder, determined to have been committed in self-defense. But there are at least two murders connected to Little Rascal's cast members. The first one is the murder of Bonnie Lee Bakley, the wife of Robert Blake, who played Mickey from 1939 to 1944. Bakley was murdered while sitting in the passenger seat of Blake's car on the night of May 4, 2001. She was shot once in the head. Blake claimed that he had left his wife in the car to return to the restaurant that they had just exited to retrieve a gun he had left on the seat. His gun was tested and determined not to be the murder weapon. However, he was investigated as a suspect, as it was well known that Bakley had a long history as a con artist. Investigators thought Blake may have had motivation to kill her, perhaps feeling like he'd been trapped by Bakley into marrying her after she gave birth to his baby. A year later, Blake was charged with her murder, along with his bodyguard, who was suspected of being an accomplice. But after a three-month trial, Blake was acquitted of the charges. There are many who still believe that Blake had a hand in Bakley's murder. He is now raising his daughter Rose as a single father. He married again in 2017 but divorced after just one year. I didn't go into detail on this case because I'll probably be covering it in depth in a later episode, or perhaps even in a separate series. There's a lot more to the story that I can't do justice to in a short segment. Also, I want to get to the final story attributed to The Little Rascal's Curse, as it is one that I didn't know about, and it is a bizarre and tragic story. J.R. Smith played Freckles in the R Gang series beginning in 1925, when they were still silent films. His nickname came from the fact, as you probably guessed, that he was blessed with a face full of freckles. The studio cast him into an R Gang talking film in 1929, but he was not happy with his performance. He didn't think he could have a successful career in talking pictures, so he quit acting at the age of 14. He married, started a successful retail paint business, and relocated to Hawaii. After he retired from the business in the 1990s, he and his wife Mabel moved to Nevada. They lived happily in Las Vegas for many years, until she died in February of 2002. Smith was now 87 years old and living alone in a senior citizen mobile home park on the outskirts of town. Directly behind the mobile home park was an area where transients sometimes set up camp. One of these men, Charles Wayne Crombie, had been living there for some time. Crombie was known around the park as an able-bodied man who was available for odd jobs in order to earn a few dollars. Smith and Crombie struck up a friendship, and a few months after his wife passed away, Smith invited Crombie to live in the back of his home in a shed. In mid-October, Smith's daughter, unable to reach her father, 
contacted his neighbors. She was told they hadn't seen him in weeks. Crombie had also not been seen for a while. She contacted the police to report her father missing. After she gave police the description of the missing senior citizen, they thought it might be a John Doe who had been in the morgue since October 5th. The body of a man had been found in the Las Vegas desert, the victim of a homicide. There were multiple stab wounds found on the body, and strangely, two of the fingers were missing. The body had been wrapped in a sheet before being dumped near Interstate 15. The body was identified as missing 87-year-old J.R. Smith. The police now launched a search for 52-year-old Wayne Crombie. They didn't know if he was a suspect or yet another victim. They found him in a casino and brought him in for questioning. Before long, he admitted to killing the old man in his home, cleaning up the crime scene, and pawning his possessions, including a television and a VCR. He'd also used his victim's bank ATM card to purchase items and withdraw over $3,000 from his account. He pled guilty to the murder and was sentenced to 40 years to life. At his sentencing, he apologized to the family, saying, I now have blood on my hands that shall never wash clean. He died in prison of natural causes in 2014. I know, I know. What a downer. A bunch of cute kids and a bunch of grim stories. Well, let me end this episode in a little more uplifting vein. The Little Rascals television series remained popular over the decades, and the Little Rascals movie was even released in 1994, with all new child actors playing the original characters of Spanky, Alfalfa, Darla, Buckwheat, and the rest. The children all got along well on the set, and the actors playing Spanky, Alfalfa, and the bully named Woim all became best friends. Alfalfa was portrayed in the film by Brandon Bug Hall, who went on to play in many more movies and television shows. Playing Alfalfa was his very first acting job. It was Ross Bagley's first acting job as well. Bagley played Buckwheat. His next job was playing Nicky Banks on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He would later appear in the films Eye for an Eye and Independence Day, for which he was nominated for a Young Artist Award. Whoopi Goldberg makes a cameo as Buckwheat's mom in the film. Others who made cameos in the film are the Olsen twins, Reba McIntyre, Raven Simone, and Donald Trump. Rich Kid Waldo and Alfalfa's nemesis was portrayed by Blake McIver Ewing, who went on to play Derek on Full House and was the voice of Eugene on Hey Arnold. He is still acting and is also a singer-songwriter and musician. Porky was played by Zachary Mabry. It was his only acting role, and he went back to just being a kid after the movie wrapped. He graduated from the University of Oklahoma with a degree in accounting and finance and now works as an accountant in the Dallas area. Stymie was played by Kevin Jamal Woods. Woods continued acting and was cast on the television series A Perfect World and in the film Babe. He quit acting and completed a college degree in marketing. He now also produces music. He also lives in Texas. Spanky was played by Travis Tedford. His character in the film is named Spanky McFarlane in honor of the original Spanky, George McFarland. I think that's so cool. He was also well known as the adorable kid featured on the Welch's Juice commercials. His other acting credits include roles in A Bug's Life, The Amanda Show, and Freaky Friday. He has since retired from acting and also lives in the Dallas, Texas area. I wonder if all these guys hang out. Wouldn't that be nice? So, apparently, the Little Rascal's curse has been broken. And that's a very good thing. 
that will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.